All right, let's uh, start out with a moment of honesty here. Um, who's fighting a physical pain right now? Raise your hand. Oh, my goodness, quite a few of you. All right, I kind of assumed there would at least be a couple people, um, and certainly you could attest to the fact, but I don't know that there's any person alive who's never experienced physical pain, and sometimes it can get pretty intense, um, quite painful. In, in fact, uh, maybe you've already experienced this, some of you who are going through pain right now. Sometimes the pain can become so distracting and so debilitating, we actually can't really do much. Sometimes we're even afraid to move because it, it hurts so bad. And then all of a sudden, it seems like our lives slow down and, and we lose our productivity. I think as we get into the Lenten season, we start to talk about the passion of Christ. Uh, that's what the word is, Pascha. It has to do with the suffering as well as the sacrifice. I think sometimes we focus on the pain of Jesus Christ and what he had to endure to make payment for our sins. I know I tend to do that. When I start to think about Jesus and everything he experienced in order to set us free from our sin and make us right with God, my mind almost immediately goes to the physical pain that he suffered. And in fact, if you do the study, and I pulled out this passage for us, um, while certainly becoming human had to be a painful experience for the Son of God, when we're talking about the passion, it seems like the most intense part of it began at this point in the Gospel record. Uh, and just to set it into its context, this is at the end of the trial uh, with the high priest. So before the uh, Roman trial, before Pontius Pilate, there was actually two trials before the Jewish Sanhedrin. And this is the one at the end they accuse Jesus and then condemn him of blaspheming God because he called himself the Christ. Uh, and as that's winding down, all of a sudden, Matthew records for us uh, actually two forms of pain. One is they, they punched him, so it was with a closed fist is what it's describing, uh, and then others would slap him with the open hand. And if you've ever been punched or slapped, you know that's very painful. And, and I'm sure they did it with great malice and force. And so in many ways, this is where the physical suffering of Jesus begins. Of course, we can jump ahead and know that the most intense part of the Savior's suffering would have taken place on the cross. You hear it not only in the things he says, but if you do any kind of study of crucifixion, I'm not sure that mankind has invented a more cruel and a more painful way to execute another human being. It's often associated with a scourging, and that was the brutal whipping that most people who were about to be executed would have to endure. And if you've ever seen any movie clips or videos of that, it's intense, and the Romans had perfected the art of torturing their prisoners. But crucifixion is one of the most cruel and painful ways to die because normally it happens one of two ways. Either there's such tremendous blood loss that you don't actually make it to the end of the crucifixion, and it happened to many a man, um, but the other alternative is even worse. And that's why at the end you hear about them breaking the prisoners' legs. Why would they do that? They're already in such pain. Well, it's so they couldn't support their body weight. If you nail a man up like this, eventually over time, the muscles of the diaphragm tighten up so strictly that slowly but surely your breath becomes shallower and shallower. It's like being uh, uh, constricted by a snake to the point where you actually can't breathe. And so you are literally suffocating while not being underwater. It is a painful, torturous, frightening way to die. So maybe you can understand, at least in my mind, and maybe it happens to you, that when you talk about Jesus' suffering and death, we immediately go to the physical pain of Jesus. 
But tonight's lesson forces us to actually go in a different direction. And I think it's part of the suffering that we don't always account for. I, again, I, I know I haven't. I haven't looked at it as intensely as, as I might. And it has to do with the emotional pain. And it borders even on the, the spiritual pain that our Lord had to endure. And again, I've given you the passage to show where most likely the, the, the worst of it begins. And that's in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember he went off with his disciples after the events of the upper room, and then he takes those three, Peter, James, and John, a little bit further into the garden, asks them to watch and pray, and then Jesus' prayer begins. A, a terribly misunderstood prayer, but quite literally he's asking God the Father to finally bring an end to all of this, to keep his promise of salvation, to bring his life to the altar of sacrifice so that he might fulfill everything the Father promised and actually make the payment for sin. And much like with his physical suffering, we also can understand that it was at the cross where the greatest emotional suffering would have taken place. And you can hear it in the words of tonight's lesson. I won't read them again. You've heard them once in the Psalm of King David, which also offers the insight that I'm not sure a lot of people, as they study through the Passion history, if they always recognize that these words don't originate with Jesus. He's quoting a passage. He's quoting what we just read earlier, the opening verses of Psalm 22. And to have a better perspective on the emotional suffering, the ouch, this uh, one of the seven deadly uh, pains of sin that brought upon us into this world, but our Savior had to suffer, I want to put these words back into their context so you can begin not only to hear, but feel the emotional suffering, the real suffering that our Savior had to endure. Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani, recorded in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Jesus is doing, and what he often does, is he quotes a part of a passage and expects his disciples to know and understand the rest of the passage. It's a rabbinic technique called remez. It saves time. And there's more in Psalm 22, more that Jesus is saying, more that Jesus is fulfilling. 
you might want to pay attention here to the rest of what Jesus is saying from the cross. You may ask, has God left him? Is Jesus suddenly alone, wondering where his father has gone? To help us understand, remember this. Jesus never, never leaves the text, not even as he gives up his life. He knows the text, he quotes the text, he lives the text. What text do you ask? The Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament, the Bible that Jesus knew. told you that this was a messianic psalm, meaning it would reference the future events of Messiah. The other way to designate it, it's also known as a dual prophecy, in the sense that there's at least two times in the history of this world that they would have these words fulfilled. Now, you know the first, or I'm sorry, the second time we heard it in the clip, but also the references to Matthew and Mark both, because you hear them writing down, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, exactly what Jesus said. We have the translation, and it matches perfectly with what we just read from Psalm 22, um, but we'll take a closer look at those words that he spoke from his mouth. The first time it would have been fulfilled would have been by the author himself, King David, and we know David has written the psalm. That's why I always hate to skip over that first little part of the psalms, and I can't for the life of me tell you what uh, doe of the morning tune sounds like that's long ago been lost. But clearly we understand that the Holy Spirit chose David to write these words, not only as a prophet, but then also as somebody who actually lived them. Here's what we don't know. We don't know exactly when these words were fulfilled in David's life, but if we do just a little bit of studying, we can make some educated guesses. And I would like to do that in, in two ways here tonight. One situation that might have fit perfectly with the words that the Messiah eventually would say and David prophesies about is recorded for us in 1 Samuel 23. Um, David at this point has been anointed as the next king. He's not that little boy anymore. He's a grown man, but he's not king yet. King Saul is still alive and ruling in the land of Israel. And if you know anything about the history in this transition, King Saul was very jealous that God is taking the throne from his family and then giving it to the family of Jesse, And so he sets about on this mission to exterminate God's anointed one. Um, there was the harassing of David early on, which quickly turned to chasing him and hoping to capture him and his men and ultimately to execute David so that Saul's son Jonathan would then ultimately be the next king. Of course, it never happened. It wasn't God's will. But that doesn't mean that King Saul didn't harass David endlessly. And that situation is recorded for us in 1 Samuel 23 because David and his fighting men hear about an attack by the Philistine nation, which would have been right over here, against these cities in Israel, and specifically this one known as Kilah. And when David gets news of this, loving his country and being the future king, he inquires the Lord, should I and my men go and fight against the Philistines? 
And God answers his prayer. He says, yes. And he promises that he will be victorious, which was important because most of the fighting men really didn't want to go. They made the point with David, you know, we got enough troubles here in Israel. You want to drag us over by the Philistines and go through that as well? And David assured him, God is on our side. He gave him a great victory. Now, here's the interesting thing. As soon as they had defeated the Philistines and they're settled by this town of Kilah, David once again inquires of the Lord. And he asks, should I stay here? Or could it be that these people might turn their backs on me and try and hand me over to King Saul? And of course, the Lord answers that prayer too. And he says, you need to get up and get going because these people are planning to forsake you. Even though you've just risked your life, even though you've rescued them from enemies, they're going to hand you over to King Saul. Which you would think would be enough, except what happens is David and his men leave that area and they go up here, an area that's known as the Desert of Ziph, and it's near that town that I've circled, Gibeah. And it happens a second time. As soon as David gets his men settled there, some of the people from that area of Ziph send a message to King Saul and says, hey, the guy you're looking for, David, whom you're chasing, is hiding amongst us. So he no more than gets settled and he has to break camp and he has to run for his life again. Now imagine risking your life for people, people that you would one day serve as king, but people that you were presently risking your life with your bravery and your soldiers to help defend because they are your fellow countrymen. And at the first chance, they turn your, their backs on you and they forsake you. And so you can understand how David could speak these words, not only in regards to his people, but he might have even questioned if the Lord was really on his side. Because after all, the Lord had anointed him to be the next king. The Lord had created him to be this warrior king. The Lord had actually told him to go and fight these battles, promising victory and other blessings. And yet when it all came down to it, it seemed like God wasn't really helping him. And so we can imagine King David saying, have, have you forsaken me too? That's one possibility. And of the two that I'm offering you, I tend to say this is probably not the occasion because I tend to lean more towards this one. And it's the one that's recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 19. It happens a number of years later. At this point, David is king. He's got his family. His sons are grown. And I'm sure you've probably heard the account, but if you haven't, one of those sons, the name Absalom, is very jealous of his father's throne, and he's kind of ticked that he's not the next in line to be king. His older brother Solomon would be that next king. So Absalom comes up with this amazing plan to win over the hearts of the people and even convinces some of David's own men to change sides, and he attempts this coup. So much so that word finally reaches David and says, you better get out of the castle because Absalom is coming with an army and he fully intends to kill you and take over your kingdom. And so once again, David finds himself on the run. This great king who had won so many battles and had defended God's people so, so faithfully once more finds that he has to abandon his own location in order to save his life. Now here's why I tend to think that maybe it's this situation of the two that fits better. And I've highlighted that for you in this section. David's escape route is exactly the same route, but in reverse, that Jesus took in order to come to Jerusalem to be forsaken, not just by the people, not just by the world, but ultimately by God himself. It seems to be this ironic flip that the same path that King David had to use to escape being forsaken, not only by his son, but even by men who had taken an oath 
of loyalty to him, he had to run for his life, Jesus would actually walk in reverse so that ultimately he would be forsaken by everybody. You can imagine how King David, after all of the blessings God had given him, how he had put him on the throne, how he could once again utter these words, have you forsaken me too? God, have you turned your back on me? Because to all appearances of a human eye, it might look that way. Which then I think gives us a chance to pause and consider of the suffering, and while the physical suffering of Jesus Christ can in no way, shape, or form be understated, I wonder if maybe we haven't sold short the emotional suffering that our brother had to endure in order to pay for our sins. I can't possibly imagine what Jesus Christ went through. I've had touches of this in my life where people that I thought I could trust betrayed me or forsook me, but, but nothing on this level. Maybe it's happened to you where somebody you thought you could depend on um, left you in the lurch. And I'm not talking about that guy that promised he'd help you move the couch and then didn't show up with his pickup truck. I'm talking about real betrayal, real abandonment, <laughs> real desperate times. I couldn't really recollect anything that specific from my own memory, so I thought it rather intriguing when just this past week, and I have several news feeds I like to read just to keep up, there were two occasions that I thought, you know what, that kind of speaks to the lesson we're going to be studying next Wednesday. I think I'm going to write them down. Let me tell you about the first. It's this woman, and though it happened some time ago, you need to understand the story because she just recently has written about it. It was out in California. She was working up in a remote place, in uh, the mountains, and she was attacked by a black bear. This bear pretty much ripped her face off and would have killed her, except for the fact that she had two dogs who ultimately chased that dog off, uh, chased the bear off. And the top box tells you she had to jump in her truck and drive four miles down this mountain to the nearest hospital in this condition. And then ultimately, her life was spared. She had many reconstructive surgeries. And you can imagine, this box tells us eventually it mounted close to $300,000. And when the bills came in, the insurance company that she had had for 30 years and she had faithfully made her payments to, started finding these loopholes so that they only had to pay about a fifth of those costs. Now, I haven't put all the details up there, but she went bankrupt. And I don't know ultimately if this book is going to help her finally get financially sound again or not. But can you imagine that when you need the help the most, after going through this traumatic experience, a company that is pledged to you to take care of you when you need them turns their backs and ultimately walks away after going through all of that. I thought that was, that was a pretty good example. And then, wouldn't you know it, a day later, this one crossed my desk. And I don't know how else to say it, because certainly times have changed. And, and 70 years ago, the way our country thought and acted is much different than today. But 70 years ago, these two people fell in love, Mary and Jake. And they got married. And Mary's family decided to disown her because she fell in love with a man whose skin wasn't the same color as her own. Try and, try and think that through. Your brother would no longer talk to you. Your sister would no longer acknowledge that you even exist. Your parents would reject you because you loved somebody who didn't look like you. The happy ending of the story is, is recently they celebrated their 70th wedding anniversary. So God does bring good and blessing even out of times of human weakness and disaster. But I can't imagine what it would be like. My own family 
the people I should be able to account on when I need them most, turning their backs and walking away. Now, take that feeling and multiply it times, oh, let's just say a trillion, and maybe we'll begin to scratch the surface of what it must have felt like for Jesus Christ to endure the abandonment and the forsaking, not just of every person who's ever lived on this world, but God himself. It's hard to imagine, but his words spell it out for us as he talks about what it was required of him in order to make things right between us, the sinners, and God, the perfect creator. Nothing less than this sacrifice would pay the cost for us to ultimately never be abandoned, forsaken by our God. Now, I'm sure you've heard examples and explanations of what he said, but I want to just take you through it in a little more detail so that you might understand and maybe have some insights into the emotional suffering. Aloy, aloy, the first two words he used, which is interesting, and you would have thought the people would have understood it because they're Hebrews, but they didn't. It's a shortened form of the more common name of God, Elohim. Not the Savior name, but the name that refers to God's power and strength. That's literally what the word means. It means to twist or to braid together, and you do that with a rope to make it stronger. It can be used to describe a ram or a pillar or like the captain of a ship, the one you should be able to depend on, the strong one. And he's calling out to God because there's nobody there for him. Now, interestingly enough, the people don't hear him calling out God's name. You heard it in the clip. They think he's calling Elijah. You think, well, how do they make a mistake like this? Well, one of the things we need to understand is, is at the time of Jesus is they weren't speaking Hebrew. They were speaking Aramaic. After the Babylonian captivity and their time there, their Hebrew language kind of got watered down a bit. We see it in our American culture where you take an English sentence and over time it gets changed into a slang form of English that I think some of us older people can't even understand now. Pastor A showed me a video one day of what the kids are using for words and I couldn't understand a word of what they were saying, and they were speaking English. So maybe you can kind of understand that the people at Jesus' time didn't get he was saying, my God, my God. But there's something else. There was a very popular belief at the time of Jesus. It was a false belief. There's nothing in Scripture to back this up. But they thought he was calling to Elijah because many people were being taught that at the moment of death, and they use Elijah because he never died, Elijah would return from heaven and take the souls of the very faithful Jewish people and escort them from this earth to heaven. And they're watching this man die, and so it might make logical sense. Oh, he's calling to Elijah. He thinks he's a faithful Jewish person. He thinks God's going to bless him and take him home, and that's not at all what he's talking about because he is calling out to God. He's revealing just how much he is suffering and it makes even more sense when you get to the next part of his phrase, Lama Sabachthani, because all of a sudden he switches from the Hebrew language into the Aramaic language, the language of the day, the sister language that they brought back from Babylon. And most certainly, the people should have understood that, except he's mixing these languages. If he started out in Hebrew, Eloi, Eloi, he should have completed the phrase by saying, Azab Rachal. That's the Hebrew for why have you forsaken. That's the Hebrew that David has in Psalm 22, and yet he changes it over to the Aramaic language. 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in two different languages in the same sentence? I don't know how to say this, but I've been a Christian since the day I was baptized, and I have never heard anybody explain to me why Jesus did this, much less a reasonable explanation for why on earth would the Son of God, who is absolutely perfect and whose mind is like a steel trap, would all of a sudden mix two languages together that ends up leaving a very confusing message for the people there witnessing his death. And I mulled this over and I thought, and I preached on this lesson before, and nothing's ever really occurred to me. Maybe I've finally gotten old enough to figure out that I don't always speak that clearly or well either. So let me offer two possibilities, and they're just possibilities, and I'll leave it to you to consider whether they're valid or not. The first is I think it's possible he might have done this switch of language because what he is saying, no human being has ever had the right to say. Even as King David spoke these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can't for a moment believe that King David actually believed that God could forsake him. And I know there's moments when we've been in so much physical pain as well as emotional pain, it feels like God has gone silent. Or maybe he's not hearing me. Maybe he's not listening to my prayer. Maybe he's forgotten about me. I know the devil tempts us at times to think that way, but I don't know that we ever truly believe that God could forsake us. If nothing else, it's completely against his nature. How could our creator, how could the one who promised us a savior, how could the one who has provided for every single need that we have had in this life and the next, and not only us, but every human being who's ever lived on the face of this earth, the righteous and the unrighteous, how could that God literally turn his back and walk away from his creation, much less those that he chooses to love? It seems to me that maybe Jesus did this to call attention to the fact that he's the only person who's ever actually had the right and could truthfully speak these words because he is the only one that God the Father has ever turned his back on. And how excruciatingly painful is that is because he's the only being that has ever existed in an eternal relationship of love. There's no good earthly or English way to truly express the term only begotten Son of God other than that from eternity, God the Father has enjoyed this amazing relationship of love with God the Son. But as our Savior hang on the cross, God the Father had to turn his back on his own son, the one he loved, in order for the sacrifice for sin to be complete. That's one possibility, one thought that seems reasonable in my own mind. The other one, I think, is a little bit more human, if I dare say. I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity, call it a blessing or a curse, to actually watch somebody die. But I recall as a, a young teenager the last months and weeks of my grandfather's life. Um, I worked alongside him on a farm for a lot of years and not only had a deep love for my grandfather but a great deal of respect. Interesting enough, a very similar situation happened with my own father, his own health issues. I wasn't there in the last couple of weeks, but every visit I could see him failing. And in the last months and even weeks of his life, with both of these men to whom I was very close, something happened that to this day I can't quite fully explain. 
in the throes of death, it seems like one of the things that gives way to us human beings is our human speech. I heard things come out of my father's mouth I had never heard my entire life. Now, I can't say that about my grandpa because he worked on a dairy farm in Wisconsin and he had some choice words whenever the cows would misbehave. But the other things that he would talk about, the way that he would address my grandmother, I'd never heard any man speak to a woman, much less his wife, that way. And I knew that wasn't my grandpa. And what it's taken me most of a lifetime to fully realize is that not only does the devil attack us up to the moment that we actually leave this life, but as we're losing control of certain faculties, I think speech is one of those that we desperately want to try and control, and we can't. Now, understanding Jesus Christ is fully human, still the Son of God, but fully human, it seems reasonable to me that under such physical and emotional pain and stress, it is quite possible that without choosing to do so, he might have mixed these languages because he was paying for our sins. And this was God the Father's way of showing us, as the brothers and sisters of Christ, the depths of what he had to endure in order to make that payment. And I think that's reasonable because if you go on to the second verse of what King David writes and says in the psalm, Psalm 22, it's a further explanation of that pain, of that misery, not just the physical suffering, but the emotional turmoil that God the Father had to put the Son through in order to keep his promise of salvation. It wasn't just God witnessing his own son sacrificing himself. It's the world watching. The only perfect person, the only one who should have never been forsaken by God or by man, going through something that none of us could ever endure in order to make us right with God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only person who could speak those words honestly from the depths of his soul is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And David attests to that. I cry out. It's like you don't answer. It's like you're not hearing me. And Jesus Christ understood this is what he would have to endure. And here's the difference. For as much as we know what it's like to feel all alone, to feel like everybody's abandoned us, it's like, okay, you've got to make it on your own. I know I made some promises. I'm going to break those. Good luck. We've only seen a glimpse in our lifetime of what Jesus had to endure. Because our being forsaken is a consequence of our sin, starting with Adam and all the way down to the daily lives that we choose to live. You see, God never wanted to be separated from us, but that's what sin does. God offered mankind an option. I will be with you. I will walk with you. I will take you hand in hand. Or, if you want to do it your way, you will certainly die. And there is no greater separator than death. And of course, man chose death and separation, which then required God to make a promise, you can walk away from me, but I will never walk away from you. And so while we'll have moments where we feel like we've been abandoned, it is a consequence of sin. Jesus was truly abandoned not because of a consequence of sin, but because of the consequences of his love. Ours now comes naturally to us. His being forsaken was a choice. A choice that he made. A choice that he 
emotionally spent himself praying about to God the Father saying, it's time, as painful as it had to be, knowing what was coming, he says, it's time for me to step up and make this payment, for you to forsake me so that you can't forsake any of them. And he stepped forward to the cross and was abandoned by everyone, even God. I don't know if I can properly express to you or put it in the right words for you to truly feel even just a bit of what our Lord had to sense and suffer so that you and I could always be with God. So that the name Aloy, Aloy doesn't ring in our heads. Instead, we have the name Emmanuel, God with us, going not only through our minds and hearts, but our mouths. What I wish I could do is take you through the entire Psalm 22, as I expressed before, because it's not just the opening verses that give us such amazing insight into the sacrifice of our Savior, but the love of our God willing to make that promise and carry it through not just so that we wouldn't be forsaken in time and eternity, but that we would always be forgiven. I want to do my best now to put these verses back into their context, and hopefully you can sense the entire message of what King David and our Savior had to say, so that you never, ever have to feel or speak those words, why have you forsaken me? Because God forsook him. Have you ever watched a game or match and thought your team had surely lost, yet somehow they won? I think of this when Jesus began to quote Psalm 22 while he was on the cross. Can we take a look at this story, prophecy? Oh, can we also look at how Jesus fulfilled this prophecy as we tell the story? Or can we do that at the end? The Psalm of the prophet David begins by saying what Jesus said on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then he cries out, but it does not appear that God answers. Next, amid his pain, he praises God, who is enthroned upon praises of his people. The prophet praises God for delivering his ancestors. Now he states that he feels like a worm and not a man. People despise and scorn him, saying, He trusts in Yahweh, God. Let him deliver him. All the people mock him. This we can see as Jesus carries his cross and when he is crucified. We can read this in Matthew 27, 39 through 43. The psalmist then cries out to God, saying that from birth Yahweh has been with him. He again asks God to be near him. Now he describes his torment poetically in many ways. He says he is surrounded by bulls with mouths open like lions. He is poured out like water and his bones are out of joint. Now he says something very interesting. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. This is amazing, and it is why Jesus only quotes the first verse of this prophecy. We can see that Jesus stops speaking because his mouth is dried out, which fulfills this prophecy here in Matthew 27:48. Then it says that he is put in the dust of death, meaning that he dies. He says that he is surrounded by evildoers like dogs, and that they have pierced his hands and feet. This describes how Jesus was nailed to the cross in Luke 23:33. Then he says that all his bones are accounted for. 
This is seen as fulfillment in John 19:32 through 37, when Jesus' bones are not broken, and fulfills the prophecy of the Passover lamb from Exodus 12. Next, it says that people cast lots for his clothing. This happens to Jesus in John 19:23 through 24. Now we come to the exciting part. He cries out to God again, asking to be delivered from the sword, the dog, and the mouth of the lion. Then he proclaims that he has been rescued from the horns of the oxen. The psalm then ends by the prophet declaring praise to God. He praises God for victory amid what looked like defeat and betrayal. He praises God, seeking to lead others to praise God for his mighty acts and deliverance. Most importantly, the prophet says that because of this, all people, groups, or nations will be brought to praise God. Here we can see God fulfilling his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12:3 through his deliverance and its ultimate fulfillment in Revelation 7:9. Now, something that we should notice is that the psalm says that he is put in the dust of death, or dies, yet is delivered. This lets us know that the prophecy of the death and resurrection of Jesus was for the purpose of drawing the nations to God's throne. Jesus proclaimed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When doing so, Jesus was showing the world that prophecy was being fulfilled. He was declaring that victory was coming through death. Jesus was proclaiming his death, resurrection, and the drawing of all nations to himself. I know we have a lot of other passages and prophecies to study this Lenten season, but I pray we do not forget Psalm 22 too quickly. <laughs> 